this week on the Backtable Podcast. So what happens is our business is largely advertising and sponsor driven versus attending and registration driven. So if you're the right target audience, we want you there, we want you to have a great experience. We'd like you to pay, but we're thrilled if you don't pay. We need to make sure, you know, there's a great Google concept for audience development that the best price is free. You know, so all of our digital newsletters are largely free. All of our podcasts are free. Our conferences, if you're a hospital executive, you're on agenda, our panel, you're coming for free. We try and make sure lots and lots of people that are the target audience are taken care of and have a great experience and are there for free. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Today, we've got a very special interview I've been really looking forward to. I've also got a co-host on this one, Brian Harley. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be here. Scott, great to have you. We're going to be discussing innovation in healthcare media. And with us today, we have Scott Becker of Becker's Healthcare. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, folks, so much for having me. Brian, Aaron, what a pleasure to be with you guys. What can I tell you? Scott Becker, I'm the founder and publisher of a media company called Becker's Healthcare. Becker's Healthcare is in a handful of core areas, hospitals, health systems, surgery centers, orthopedic and spine, and a whole variety of other areas has grown to we have 100 full-time employees, 30 full-time writers, big events, big you know websites and electronic newsletters, probably about 20, 30 electronic newsletters a week in, in different niches. By background, I'm a lawyer, and it's a whole story as to how I ended up in this business. So the two things I've done professionally over the course of my career are both in healthcare, as a lawyer in the healthcare world, and then in media and healthcare. And I started this Becker's Healthcare 30 plus years ago, also Milwaukee 30 years ago or so, and was somebody who went to Harvard is almost can't help themselves but tell you that they went to Harvard within the first 30 seconds of discussing it. It's a character flaw, so I did go to Harvard Law School, but I, I did go to University of Illinois undergraduate. And there's a whole story between, you know, I had very fascinating time at Harvard because I had I was a teaching assistant. I don't want to jump too far into everything too quickly, but one of the students in my class was President Obama. He wasn't president then. He was a first-year student. I was a third-year student, and he was just by background and clarity and not false humility. He and another student in the class were a billion times brighter than myself, and that's not false humility. So I would try and teach, and what Brock and this other gentleman, Eric Poser, is not a law school professor, would do is say, I think what Scott is trying to say, and I think what he means is this, and it was literally like a Saturday Night Live skip, but they did it so graciously, so wonderfully that it wasn't offensive. But in any event, Becker's Healthcare, a lawyer at a large firm where I headed up the national healthcare practice for a long time, founded Becker's Healthcare, went to Harvard Law School, a CPA, written and authored stuff, speak. And just a pleasure to be with you folks today. And I'll, I'll shut up for a second and turn it back to you guys. Thank you so much. No, Scott, I love that. I love that you started with a story too. But yeah, let, let's start with, you know, after law school, you're in practice. Was there something in your personal career that sparked the idea for creating the platform? Since it was, it was kind of a niche topic in the beginning, right? 100%. We started off in the surgery center area, but the real story behind founding it was, I was a young lawyer. Like at one time, you guys were very young doctors. You're still young doctors, much younger than I am. But as a lawyer, the first firm I worked at was a mega firm where it became clear after a few years that somehow or another, you had to have some control of your career. And the only way to have some control of your career was to ultimately have your own client base. And so I ended up sort of in this healthcare legal business representing 
surgeons, hospitals, hospitals and health systems, surgery centers, and other things. And, and was trying to build a brand for myself as a lawyer is how this started. And this goes back to like I was in my 20s, which is like, which dates me some, but it had started with a really, very small newsletter, a very, very small conference. And when it first got going, it was really intended to be just a legal marketing to brand myself as a lawyer. And the experience was at my first firm, which is a mega firm and what one people would think of as, you know, almost like a sweatshop today in terms of law firms, it was just brutal. And, and the lesson that I got was you couldn't be in legal practice at a big firm, at least back in the day, without having some control of your client base, control of your life, meaning that you had your own client base. You weren't just somebody else's personal dog. And, and I didn't want to shoot anybody poorly. I just didn't want to be like that. So if you ended up at a big law firm when you were 50 years old, you had no control over your life if you didn't have your own client base. So early on, I decided to do my own client base. I started personally branding. And some years into building and starting that personal branding effort in healthcare, it became clear to me that there was, this was different and more than just legal branding. We could turn this into a real sort of business around healthcare media. And that was the big transition. And that was probably about five or 10 years in where I started to hire people. I didn't have, quote unquote, a co-founder, but I did have a brilliant woman who joined me about 10 years in named Jessica Cole. And Jessica was by chance a client's niece who started with me out of college. She was in college. I was already a lawyer 30 plus at that point. And that was when the company became a whole different thing. It moved from being sort of legal marketing and branding and trying to develop a brand for myself into a true media company. And that's when we started to expand. At some point really early on, Jessica was a young person, incredibly gifted. And really early on, I said to everybody that worked for me at that point, and that point I had 10, 12, 15 full-time employees in the media business, you know, I sort of shook my hands and said, oh my goodness, I can't deal with this. I'm also running a full-time legal practice. And I put Jessica in charge of everything. And so when you talk about instrumental, put her in everything in terms of commercialization of the business. I ended up still being for the purpose of chief content officer, but I let her organize everybody, commercialize everything, worked with me on the vision of what we're trying to do. And that was the big, huge transition. That, that's how it started. But that transition five to 10 years in was really the big, big transition to being a media company versus being a branding type of thing. What was happening in those first five to 10 years? When you say you were just trying to do legal marketing, were you sending out a newsletter or you were trying to drive clients, I assume, to you, to you in healthcare? We were trying to develop. We did a really good job back in the day of being what they would call today thought leadership, meaning we were never a hardcore salesperson, but we had to develop a legal practice. And the message really was, we're really entwined in this area. The original area was surgery-centered. So we were doing a very short newsletter. It might have been four pages. If you look at it today, it looked almost like mimeographed. That's a word from way back in the past, like copied pieces of paper, but it went out to all the surgery centers in the country. You mailed it. We mailed it. We mailed it. Yeah. This goes back 25 years ago. Websites first became a thing. We started a website around it. And it was a very premature vision or immature vision of what we have today, where we've got multiple, multiple websites and, and they're visited by millions and millions of people. But back in the day, it was a very small newsletter. It was a website. It was a very small conference. And the conference was now in its 30th year. It's a surgery center conference. It used to be at the airport hotel right near you know O'Hare Airport. And we still do everything in Chicago just for a lot of reasons. A central place for people to come to and so forth and so on you know but yeah no originally it was a small newsletter that would look very immature by today's standards it was a website and it was a conference and it was all sort of making some money it wasn't doing great but it was making some money enough for me to fund it between that and the money i made from law 
to fund it and hire people and start to grow it and start to develop it. And then the big pivot was at some point when Jessica joined me and we got out of just the surgery center business and expanded into some other areas. And one of those areas became the huge driver of the company. So having met Jessica, I agree she's brilliant. And it sounds like like in EOS terms, like she's your integrator when you're the visionary, basically, right? Yeah, I would think that that is a great, like the Gina Wickman EOS concept of operating systems and so forth. I would say that that was the original sort of pairing, sort of visionary, and she was the integrator. The flip side is, and we talk about this in business regularly with founders, there's three stages of a founder. And it just, it goes to this point on Jessica. At first, a founder does everything himself or herself. Then he or she hires people that do all the different tasks, all the different pieces of the business, but aren't necessarily accretive in a different way. It's still one plus one equals two or two plus two equals four. And then at some point, the visionary puts people in charge or the original founder that are far better than himself or herself. And that's, I think, the third stage of being a founder. And so what happened with us is Jessica and a number of other people ended up being so much better at the things that I used to do that was one of the keys to moving the business to a whole different level. So if we started off with a visionary and integrator, Jessica became far better as an integrator than I ever was and became my equal as a visionary as well over time. We view that as the evolution of a founder from the old phrase, does everything, to hires people, but not necessarily that are that much stronger than him or herself, to now where every single thing I used to do can largely be done better by somebody who leads a department of the company. So if we have 100, 110 employees, there's different leaders that are just, and it's not false modesty. That's where you want to build too. Yeah. That's interesting. I've got two questions. Number one, did you have to fund any of this yourself out of your own pocket or all of it? We funded it all myself. The, the beauty of it was, and I talked to him about this regularly, and there's a huge between venture capital sort of businesses and businesses that are made for cash flow. You know, I grew up not in a um, particularly wealthy family. And cash flow was important to me. Like I was always, you know, you want to build money scared. And so we were, cash flow is very important, very different than people today. You find all these VC funded businesses that have different sort of odds of success that are funded to grow like crazy and then find profits. I was funding it myself, but it cash flowed relatively early on because we had these small conferences that were not, it was very small money, but they cash flowed enough that between my legal practice and the business, I was able to start to hire people till we got through that middle zone over that hump to where it really was able to, you know, to cash flow itself. You know, it's, yes, I funded it all myself 30 years later. We did at some point sell part of it to a private equity fund and so forth. So we've got those kinds of partnerships today, which is a whole nother set of subjects and, you know, wonderful, but love, hate subjects, you know, I mean, positives and negatives, but it's gone overall great, but I funded it all myself for a very long time. Yeah. And I definitely like the key of this, I want to get to that per that hump that you were talking about and when that happened. But before that, it sounds like you kind of found the power of branding. At first, it sounds like you were just driving, you were trying to grow your practice. And then you found that, oh my gosh, this is a tool in and of itself that could be a business. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that transition. And then I, then I definitely want to hear about the hump. Well, sure. So the transition was really exactly that. It was at some point where this sort of small business started to do nicely and started to be like, there was more and more demand for it. Like we were doing these conferences around surgery centers and there was just more and more demand for it. There was more and more people that wanted to come to it. There were more and more companies that wanted to be in front of the audience. 
we sort of started, that was at the point where I started to hire full-time employees into it. And Jessica was one of those early employees. It became clear, but it's a discussion we have all the time about people and business. I mean, not to digress. We view businesses in three parts, really. Niche-centric, customer-centric, team and people-centric, sort of three big cores to business success, that you're winning in a niche, that you're really in a niche, great customers, you take care of those customers really well, and that you're also great people and great teams. And so I was having a discussion the other day with a small business person who's growing a business like crazy, and he or she's got the problem, he in this case, of got one core employee, and that core employee wants to leave. And one of the things about a middle point of business, a starting point of business, an evolution point of business is any real business, you have to decide what you're trying to do with the business, but you have to get through this middle zone where you're so reliant on one person, one customer, one team member, one whatever. And so this, this great challenge, at some point, you're forced to grow because to be able to retain and build the team you want to build, you need more product, more opportunities, more everything. And so you're sort of in a spot where Jessica and I studied at one point two different businesses. We modeled ourselves after one of them. But a lot of the growth and expansion was based on the fact we just couldn't live with being so reliant on just a couple of people. You know, so these teams go, they, they go side by side because you're building a team, you're building a client or customer base. You have to be great at taking care of that customer base and serving your niche. You have to be fantastic at it. But it's sort of, they go hand in hand because if you keep a business too small, you're too reliant on a couple of people and a couple of customers. So there's this middle ground you have to get through. And it's, a, it's that's a very stressful middle zone in businesses. And tell me, does that... So you've got one group of people you're going after, and you said you had your conferences, your surgical centers. Is that the kind of the group you're talking about right now was your initial group that you were relying on? And then to grow, you had to look at adjacent groups or expand into other customer groups. And what were those groups and how did you make that transition? A hundred percent. That's exactly right. So to build a little bit more less fragile sales team, less fragile editorial team, less fragile events team, we couldn't just be in one niche. It was just very hard to just be in one niche. That's high risk too, I guess. If anything happened, it would be, you know, it's got one leg to stand on. It's high risk and you need enough people in sales and editorial and your core functions to have a great team and not to have one person that, oh my God, that person quit, whatever reason, or the person who doesn't work well. So side by side. So at some point, 20 years back, maybe 22, 25 years back, we expanded into two next areas, which were hospitals and health systems and orthopedic and spine. And this was, again, what happens in businesses, you're constantly learning. So for us, surgery centers were very, very close to orthopedics and spine. And so we thought this would be our home run area. This would be the next big driver of the company. But we completely misunderstood sort of the size and power and strength and importance of the hospital and health system audience to both the need for information, but also the need for companies to reach that audience. And so in hindsight, it's very simple. Each surgery center is a three to ten million dollar business. Each hospital is a hundred million to a billion dollar business, which from a media company perspective are important numbers because if you're a huge potential customer, then there's lots of people that need to reach that customer. And so what happened over the course of the time, we started with surgery centers, but hospital and health systems have become 80% plus of our business. But we wouldn't have expected that. We thought it was going to be, you know, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say provincial, but I'm very much an incremental thinker. Like I learn incrementally. Some people that I've had a chance to visit with are so bright, they could think in seventh drafts. They could think in seventh iterations. 
me, I've always been an incrementalist blocking and tackling. And so we started both of these other lines. And the one thing that we did well was we watch very closely where our customers are at, where revenues or profits are coming from. We try and know our business really well. And so we were able to watch it and see, notwithstanding our bias towards orthopedics and spine, which we have a great following in, so much more opportunity was happening in the hospital and health system space. So we were able to sort of double down in that area, in that space. And that's sort of how we approached it. I mean, it's very similar to how we ran the legal practice as well in the healthcare and national legal department, which was doubling down on the right opportunities, being very niche-centric and trying to develop great lawyers to take care of them. I mean, it's very similar, different businesses, but very similar concepts for both. So you made this move, from what I'm understanding, you started surgical centers and then you said, well, there's this whole group of hospital systems that have a 10x the budget or revenue, probably both. And so you started targeting them. And how did you make that transition? Did you hire folks? Did you do the research yourself? Did you just start taking the same information and market to them? And so in each of our, what we call a vertical today, today is an example. We have audience members in person, we have readers and we have listeners. So readers, listeners, it's obviously, it's a, it's a different target group. The target group for surgery centers was pretty connected to the target group for orthopedic and spine, meaning a lot of orthopedic and spine surgeons are investors in surgery centers. So that was a very natural adjacency. And what we did, which is what we recommend to anybody starting a business is, we had some discussions as we moved into these other lines with some of our existing important customers and sort of talked to them about it. We encourage anybody who's starting a business to start with the customer first. And it's a different story, but we've had Lots of businesses where I've served on boards where people build something they want to build, but if they don't talk to the customers first, they build something beautiful, but there's no product fit. So we early on, before we even launched hospitals and orthopedic and spine, we talked to a handful of our customers. And those customers were people that were advertisers, companies that supported the platform. You know, And they were very excited about the hospital line because they saw clearer than us that was their target market. Instead, it became developing separate newsletters, separate content, separate electronic daily newsletters, separate websites for the hospital side versus the surgery center side. Then the orthopedics and spine side versus the, I don't know, 16, 18 years ago, no, 14, 15 years ago, I don't know, I'll get the number right, 16, 18 years ago, we launched our first hospital conference, but a separate audience. I want to talk about those three verticals you just mentioned, readers, listeners, in person, right? That's what you mean when you mean verticals. You're not talking about your different ASC, ortho, spine, hospital review. By verticals, we would mean the latter, hospitals, surgery centers, orthopedic and spine, cardio, whatever the area is. But within those verticals, within those niche service line areas, so to speak, we have to be a magnet for listeners, readers, and attendees. Got it. Yeah. So attendees is in-person is conferences, listeners is webinars and podcasts, right? And then readers are your articles. Exactly. Okay. And then you see your advertisers as your customers and then your readers, listeners, in per- I mean, in-person conferences are obviously customers as well. So you have two different types of customers, am I correct? Yes, absolutely. So there's two different ways we view it. We have to be so good for our core audience and our core audience in the hospital sector would be hospital and health system leaders, CEOs, CFOs, chief nursing officers, whoever it might be. Our, our core audience in the surgery center sector might be surgeons that own surgery centers, administrators that run surgery centers. Those are the audiences. But the business is really driven around 
making sure that we're taking care of that audience tremendously well, and then putting our advertisers, connecting our brand and connecting our sponsors in front of those audiences. But we, we have to be so good at getting the information that people want in those sectors so that the people, the audience, the listeners, the readers, the attendees use us as a core information source so that then advertisers want to be in front of them. Right, exactly. You're honed in on who your target audience is. You know that to a T. How has it been? I'm sure there's been challenges along the way because this is actually something that I've talked to Jessica about is like, who's your ICP, your ideal customer in terms of advertiser? Because as you know, some advertisers want more than to just get in front of the target audience. They won't actually control the content. Can you talk about challenges that you guys have had along the way with that? Sure. I mean, what's happened with advertising, and this is the fascinating transition over a 10, 30 year period, there's two core kinds of advertising. There's what we call brand advertising and there's lead generation. So if you went back in the day, the big, big companies would advertise on TV and they weren't looking for leads. They advertised in print, there is whatever they advertised, but they were trying to build their brand. So when a consumer went into a store, they bought Tide or Clorox or whatever it was, but the same thing across the world. If you look at today, and the biggest companies are extremely focused on this too, much, much more advertising and sponsored specific spend drives back to, am I getting leads? Am I actually reaching my customer and turning that into business one way or another? And so we have, there's much more of the shift over the last 20 years towards that. So it's very hardcore. You know, the most sophisticated companies, the smallest companies, the largest companies are very much looking for what's the return on their investment in being at one of our conferences or, or being doing a white paper or doing a you know a webinar? Are they getting the leads they want to grow their business? Whatever it might be. But the world has shifted greatly from what we call branding advertising to lead generation advertising and make sure the customers get what they want in that. Do you guys do like to appease like maybe an advertiser that wants something more than brand awareness or even just a link they want, like an advertorial, for example. Do you guys do things like that? Sure. And there's there's two different pieces of it. There's, there's sponsored what are called white papers or a paper that's either written by them, co-written by them, that's noted as a sponsored piece. There's webinars or podcasts that sponsors are on, and, and it's clear that they're sponsors of them. And then their job is to make it truly informative, not a sales pitch. I mean, the flip side is, you know, when we first started this as a mom and pop thing, we'd probably be more sensitive to an advertiser being pissed off about some kind of coverage in the newsletter that they didn't like, that didn't reflect well on them. You know, over the course of the years, as we've become, you know, a real, what I would say, not legal branding 30 years ago, but over the last 20 years, became a real news outlet, we tried very hard to avoid that avoid somebody from a big customer saying, hey, we had negative press and this stuff like that. We don't go out of our way. We're not an investigative journalist outlet. We're just not that. We're trying to provide great information to people in the business. We always paint ourselves as trying to be the Wall Street Journal of Healthcare, trying to give people the best, short, concise business information around hospitals, also some surgery centers, now health IT as well, and revenue cycle, and orthopedic and spine, and all of our areas. But we're also trying to give short, concise, useful information to give people a sense of where the trends are going. We're not in the investigative journalism business, but we also no longer, probably for a very, very long time, listen to advertisers complain about, you know, we were covered poorly in this or that. We, we sort of, yeah, you know. Well, I could see that. And also, like, on the reader side, do you ever get pushback like, hey, I just there's too much advertising here, or this too much promotional stuff here? Do you ever get that sort of feedback as well? We don't get a horrendous amount of it, no. We'll get two kinds of feedback. It's very important at our conferences 
that you maintain some balance in your ratio of everything of like people that are the true audience versus the advertisers. So you go to a conference and it's become too sponsor heavy where you can't run into a health system executive without running to 10 advertisers. At some point, unless that's a conference where the advertisers do a lot of business with each other, that becomes a horrible ratio. So you have to be, we have to guard against those kinds of things. We have to manage that to make sure there's enough attendees for the amount of people that are there that are in the in the vending or selling business of some sort. Online, we're pretty disciplined about. If you look at every electric newsletter, might have 15 items of which two or three will be links to an advertising thing of some sort, some kind of text ad. At the end of the day, you have to maintain your sort of audience experience. And we've seen other businesses that have so killed the audience experience so that at some point the audience leaves and the advertisers won't keep with you because they, they realize they you no longer have the right audience. So we're very, very, you know, we're trying to make sure our audience experience is great, meaning listener, reader, attendee. And then we're trying to make sure our vendor or customer experience is great as well. And so people, like, we don't allow people to come to our audience and our vendors, lesser sponsors and exhibitors, depending on which conference it is. In a lot of our conferences, our bigger conferences, because we have the places flooded with vendors and the advertisers, it sort of ruins the audience experience. And a veteran advertiser might argue with me, but that's how we view it. Yeah. So you mentioned the information and I can totally understand you not wanting to dilute basically the core information for your audience with too much advertising. It's got to be that right ratio that keeps everybody happy. That brings me to the information itself. So I would love to hear a little bit about your funnel. So where do you take information in and how do you develop writers, which I assume is what you have, writers to distill it down to its basic information and also provide kind of a Becker's voice. I assume you have to have like a standard kind of way of doing things. It's like going to Starbucks, right? I want it to be the same in Seattle as it is in New York. And I assume you you strive to do something like that. Yeah, no, we try. And so we have 30 full-time writers that cover different areas. I'd say 30 full-time, some are part-time, but, but all quite productive, generally, some more than others, but a fantastic writing group. We always with the editorial team as the crown jewel of the company. So there's about 30 full-time writers. They're split up into covering different areas, depending on, you know, the company, the hospital, health system, health IT, revenue cycle, surgery centers, orthopedic and spine. They're split up. Their job is to cover those areas very fully with sort of at the end of the day, short, concise concepts for the reader. There's an editor in each line that lays out the daily newsletter that picks the stories that are going in that. And we watch stats very closely to see are they getting open more, closed more, not read, not read, stuff like that. But then in terms of the journalist, they do a tremendous amount of work of both. They have to do two things. They're constantly on the internet looking at what's going on in the business. And then they're constantly talking to people. There's no way around constantly talking to people to sort of have a better feel for what's going on. Who are they talking to? If they're like Carly Beam follows the spine line, she's constantly talking to spine surgeons. Other people cover the hospital line, constantly talking to hospital leadership. So Molly Gamble did an article yesterday on health system leadership and how it's changing and how people are changing and how perspectives are changing. And she had probably done five podcasts in the last two weeks where she talked to people about those issues, health system executives and similar. So you're, you're constantly having like our best journalists are very connected to the audience. Like the best compliment I could get if I'm at a conference someplace else is for somebody at the conference to say, I talked to Laura Derda, who's one of our editors in chief. And, you know, she's always talking to us about what's going on. And that gives me sort of a totally unsolicited, unbiased view of, oh my goodness, this is what it, what are people doing? They have to be very active in the field 
and not just completely introverted. They have to be have a mix of both. Wow. So they have to develop a lot of relationships is what it seems like. It's a relationship business. It is. And what happens is in this chat GPT world, in this sort of more and more sort of automated everything, the, the difference is that ability to really be in sync with what's going on in your audience is really what's happening. You have to really actually know at a different level what's going on and be able to feel that versus being able to just derive it out of AI or chat GPT. And it's, this is a challenging, evolving world as the world of all these things changes. But the difference is you know, we have to make sure people are actually connected to the platform. They actually feel connected to the platform. They're featured in the platform. But that requires constant connectivity, not just scouring the internet, which is part of it. Scouring the internet's part of it. But they have to be constantly connected. How do you feel about AI? And it seems like, a, at least when ChatGPT came out, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's going to replace journalists. It's going to replace writers. Do you feel like it's a tool that should be used? Or do you guys are you guys looking into using it? Yeah, I don't think you could be in the publishing business without trying to figure it out. I mean, I don't think you could be in most businesses without trying to figure it out. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it puts a bigger and bigger premium on that second set of skills we were just talking about, which is, you know, we always viewed the person who's the, who lays out an ele electronic newsletter is very, very important because that person has got to decide what is going to connect with readers, which interests the readers without being clickbait, without being just like, this person died here, so it's interesting. But they have to be able to connect with the reader in a way that's intelligent the reader wants. Then we need writers that are cranking out enough pieces that can go into those e-newsletters that the audience really wants to hear them, you know, see them and so forth. The editor's job is easy because they've got people that have written stories that are easy to place. And we're, and we're producing newsletters every single day, seven days a week. So there's got to be a lot of content. But, you know, the ChatGPT is a complicated issue. We'll figure it out. At the same time, it puts more of a premium. So many of these technology things put more of a premium on what's missing is that interconnectivity. And so, you know, one thing that becomes more and more important for our e-editors to really know what readers think and want, to really be connected with executives. So those executives find it interesting. You know, and there's just a, a lot of that. And we, we view things as everything in life is this great mix of great information plus a camp newsletter. But what I mean by that, if you had a kid that ever went to camp, you ever went to camp, the only thing that anybody cares about in the camp newsletter, there, there is one thing. Is their kid's name in the camp newsletter? Did Johnny or Susie get a double today or not? You know, that that's the only thing anybody cares about. And so, you know, we're very big on being highly personalized and highly sort of like, we're not personalized each newsletter for everybody, but we're very big at making sure this works for this audience. This somehow or another touched somebody. It touched somebody. Somebody was pleased to read it for a different reason. I mean, it's this great mix of great information, the Wall Street Journal of Healthcare, and naming systems, naming people, hopefully more in a positive way than a negative way, and making sure people see it because that, you know, people follow it. Yeah, Scott, I like your view on the ChatGPT. My whole concern with it is, is it's just going to create more noise out there and we're going to lose that signal to noise ratio, which is really what you're getting at with like, what's connecting to the reader. And it's harder to find those connections, I think now, like that, you know, that everybody's obsessed with having a zillion connections on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, but what are the actual valuable connections there? And it's the same with content, I feel like. We couldn't agree more. It, like I started this 30 years ago and thank God I started 30 years ago before the internet was overloaded. You know, you, you try and start things today and the amount of resources it requires to build a following if you didn't do it organically 20 years ago, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, you guys have built this incredible following in which you do with your podcast. I mean, it's literally incredible. And you do it so professionally and so well. I mean, you've built around niches, which is just magnificent. And you do it in a highly intelligent way. 
and you're obviously connected with your audience, both on the audience side and the vendor side. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. It's not easy to do today because there's so much information overload. And what you mentioned, and I love that phrase, the signal to noise ratio. This is a different game today than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, no one was doing what I was doing. So it was easy to, to, to build a following. Today, you started it today, it's a war. I mean, it's brutal because there's so much noise. I mean, it's just a different world than it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. There's all these platforms that are just trying to pull your attention in all different directions. And so I do feel like what you're saying and, and the in-person stuff is interesting because it's something that we've always thought about, like how can we engage with people more in person? That's where we get our ideas. I mean, that's why I love that we have this physician team because we're pulling ideas from every day in our clinical practices. And, and you don't know what's important to your audience unless you have those relationships and are asking those questions. And that's where I think AI is not going to be able to replay. All AI can do is replicate what already exists in terms of content. It's not going to be able to create fresh content, right? It can clean it up. And who knows how good it will get. But I do think what you said is like, every time I have a conversation, it inspires me, it educates me, it does so much more. I mean, I, I am a reader as well, but, but meeting in person, talking in person, I mean, just learning about what you folks do. I had a discussion with on, a, on my podcast with the CEO from the Hospital for Special Surgery, Louis Shapiro, I'm a huge fan of. And every time I have those discussions, I learn something. And it just is, uh, you know, and I learn something like it. I hate to travel is one of my, my um, admissions. I hate traveling. So I travel to a couple places and to see my children. And I hate traveling besides that. But I will go periodically. I literally hate it. I'm like one of these people that's so phobic of it, you know, but I go to things for exactly that reason, because I get ideas, I get motivated, I get excited. And then I, you know, so I do those things. So, so because exactly that, the in-person experience is still just really a magnificent thing. You get so much more of like, you and I could email back and forth and text back and forth for 10 years. And I will know, know more about the two of you after this 30, 40 minute discussion than I would if we just, than if we just emailed and, you know, and then of course, if you sat down and had a drink and dinner, you probably know that much more. But in some ways I love these structured conversations too. So. Well, speaking of the conferences, you don't want to travel, right? Because I hear that often, like about doctors, like, yeah, I might go to one or two. It's just, it's a lot to travel to wherever it is. And you only get so much free time as it is outside of work. And it's like, okay, I'm going to spend it at a conference. What is it about? Because it sounds like conferences are one of like the major pillars of your media company. How often are you guys doing them? Are they year round? Can you just tell us a little bit more about the conferences and how that part of the business is run since you, it sounds like you're probably not that involved with it other than going to them? The, uh, the, uh, well, that's not a fair statement. I'm not that involved. Oh, the, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> just kidding. No, 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 I'm kidding. He means you're the boss now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have two core health system conferences a year. We have an annual meeting in April. We have a CEO meeting, CEO, CFO roundtable in November. So two big hospital conferences a year. And our goal is, we've always used this concept. The overriding concept was teach and entertain. Teach and entertain is something we, we talk about often. And then we also are believers in participatory agendas. And then I will teach, entertain, participatory agendas, and Peter Brady. And so Peter Brady is the last statement. So Peter Brady, now you guys are too young. But Peter Brady was one of the main characters in the Brady Bunch. And you thought I was going to go with something sophisticated like James Brady, who, was, who got shot protecting President Reagan or something like that. But no. We know the Brady Bunch. Yes, yes, yes. So the Brady Bunch, yeah. So you know the Brady Bunch, even though they're a little younger than I am. Peter Brady once threw a party and nobody showed up. 
And so the, the concept was that was always talked about is you never want to have what's called a Peter Brady party. So we live with three concepts. We live with teach and entertain. So we'll have lots and lots of business sessions, but then we'll also have big keynote speakers. So we've had Bill Clinton, we've had President Bush, we've had Laura Bush, we've had Hillary Clinton, we've had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, we've had Bobby Knight, we have, you know, we've had Bill Walton, we had Mark Cuban at our last conference speaking. That's the entertainment part, to keep it interesting, to give people like another reason to come because we want people to have a great experience. Then the networking part, the teaching part is tons of relatively short sessions on business issues with participants from the core audience. Like at our health IT conference coming up in October, we'll have 400 or so participating speakers. So big participatory agenda to go with a big audience. And, and similarly, our ASC conference, October 26th, 28th, is our surgery center conference, not the advertisement surgery center conference in the least bit, but it's not as big a budget of meetings. So it doesn't have the president speaking, but we'll have Rob Gronkowski speaking, Mia Hamm speaking from the women's soccer team, women's soccer fame, and Ravel Gronkowski, who was Tom Brady's go-to person, at least for several years, with Jason Selk, who's a fascinating sports psychologist speaking. But we try and make sure every conference is teach and entertain, big participatory agendas built around our core audiences, you know, and then we, we try hard. What we've always said about building conferences is we want to build it such that on day one, we know we'll have a serious audience. And that's the concept of avoiding the Peter Brady party is we know that we're not even going to put on a conference unless we've got 50 speakers on the agenda or pick a number, you know, and some people in spine, Frank Phillips runs a spine conference in Kabul every year. He's brilliantly executed this concept of participatory agenda. Where he's got a hundred spine surgeons there each speaking 10, 15 minutes a piece. So they're involved. So they're engaged. Everybody's happier and they've got a role. They're not just there as an, as an observer, or at least a lot of people are. So that's sort of what we have viewed as part of the conference business. And the conference business is a very competitive business. And so we have to be great at it, you know, and, and if, if we're not great at it, we hear about it. We hear about it quickly. Like, you know, the numbers for next year don't go up as much. We have to retool. We have to repivot. You know, we had a conference right out of COVID. The first conference right out of COVID was sort of a little bit disappointing. It was, you know, you could look at it as the glass half full because the first conference out of COVID, oh my God, we got to get our conference wheels going again. We did so many digital conferences during COVID. We got to get our in-person conferences geared up in the right way again. And we had, you know, over the three, four year period had, you know, different teammates, different people. So to get back to the core of this is what we're built around. I mean, you know, I think the recovery from COVID, but it sounds like you guys are back in full, full steam because I know some people that went to your last conference this spring, I think, who said it was amazing. So would you say you're back to uh, full capacity? No, a hundred percent. And we're sort of like, our, our two hospital meetings are as big or better than ever, but it's, you know, this was a war. We've been at this for 30 years. You constantly have to keep it fresh and interesting and sharp. And we've got a great, great team that does a ton of that. There's, you know, a great agenda team, a great conference team that does a ton of that, but it's, it's a constant effort. And you could see it very quickly. An audience member might not see it. They might feel it somehow or another, but a founder, entrepreneur, leader could see very quickly, this is hitting right or not hitting right. You could see the vibe very quickly. Are we really hitting where we should or not? And it's a constant effort to stay fresh and interesting and, and meet a need for the audience and for the sponsors and advertisers. But if we meet the need for the audience, generally the sponsors and advertisers, it's not that they tear themselves because they don't. We have to work hard to make sure they're there and front and center and all those kinds of things. But if we take care of the audience first, a lot of other things go well. I got a story for another day, Scott, where I threw a Peter Brady party for a fundraiser in med school and 
I had everything lined up. I had everything. But the thing that I didn't focus on was getting people in the door and I didn't market it. And it was so embarrassing because I had a band, I had catering, I had, and it was just me and my friends sitting there. And it was like, yeah, it was a letdown. But again, a story for another day. But I, I do want to, I, I do like this idea of like the premium. So like a conference, I always think of it as like a premium experience. It's in person. And of course, you get attendees to pay for that premium experience because they're coming, they're seeing Bill Clinton or one of these other big names. You know, that's people wanted to come and see those people in person. But the digital side, it seems like pure advertising. Unless, are, have you guys considered a premium sort of version of that where there's no advertising for your digital content? Or do you guys have something like that? It's so interesting. So, what happens is our business is largely advertising and sponsor driven versus attending and registration driven. So if you're the right target audience, we want you there, we want you to have a great experience. We'd like you to pay, but we're thrilled if you don't pay. We need to make sure, you know, there's a great Google concept for audience development that the best price is free. You know, so all of our digital newsletters are largely free. All of our podcasts are free. Our conferences, if you're a hospital executive, you're on agenda, our panel, you're coming for free. We try and make sure lots and lots of people that are the target audience are taken care of and have a great experience and are there for free. So our business comes from the other side. In the in the sort of business world, as you folks know, well, all that big business talks about is quote unquote recurring revenue. This became sort of the this became sort of the the phrase of the day, particularly during COVID, during Peloton, during everything. Everybody wants a recurring revenue system. The Wall Street Journal and New York Times have done better than anybody of the major newspapers in being able to command a, a premium subscription, a, a subscription rate to go with their advertising. And it's really been the savior to those two audiences as print advertising changed over the years that they're able to online and in person have a subscriber. We don't have a lot of subscriber revenues. Years ago, our newsletter, we got out of it really, people might subscribe to it, but we really got out of caring about whether they subscribed or not, meaning the print newspaper, news magazine, the e-newsletter, the same thing. We're not, we, we do have a separate offering that's been started. It's not yet really gotten going that much, which is called My Becker's Healthcare or My BHC, which is a premium offering around things without ads, without those kinds of things. But it's, it's an experiment more than a core. But this concept of everybody is, um, you know, everybody's looking for something that gives subscription revenues to go with other kinds of revenues. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of like what's going on with entertainment with, you know, the Netflix and Disney, and then you still have Prime where you can just buy something on demand rather than have us, you know, have a subscription. I agree with you. It's like, what's the right way? I mean, I think some people are, there's an audience that's willing to pay for it to not have to deal with advertising. I like free stuff. A lot of people like free stuff, right? I mean, we still have a ton of free stuff. We're huge fans. Yeah. We're huge fans. Our goal when I first started this was building an audience. And at some point, one, collecting subscription fees when you were bottle washer, cook, everything was just like, oh my goodness, you collect $100 here, $90 here, where, where I want to shoot myself. And I say that facetiously, I don't want to shoot myself, but it was brutal. It was brutal. And, and so we sort of got out of that business. We had, I mean, I, I'm a reader and an incremental learner. And a lot of things you do instinctually, but then you read and then you understand and you double down on there was a great book about Google 100 years ago called The Best Price is Free, something like that. That was one of the clicking spots for me of like, oh, got it. We want to make this free to everybody. Our goal was we were competing back in the day with a great, great publication, great print publication called Modern Healthcare and still a great print publication. But at some point, I was funding myself, as we talked about earlier, I could not compete with the print publication. I used to have the reason I couldn't do it. it could, we couldn't send to more people than they were sending to. 
without going broke very quickly. And so we had moved to very quickly a concept of we want to be number one in the web. You know, we wanted to be number one as a digital place. And so we doubled and doubled and tripled down on that. And that's where we went with it. And it really was very much the model coming out of this Google concept of the audience is free. I think you brought up a bunch of things right there that I, just one thing I want to talk on is charging for everything. You guys have kind of been going back and forth on that. And it's like airlines, right? They're charging for if you want to bring a, you know, an extra coffee on board, they're like, oh, that's going to, that's going to cost you. So I was reading actually on your newsletter that it seems like some hospital systems are going to start charging for using my chart. You know, where do you see that trend going? You know, because if I draw that out, it gets a little, it gets a little bit scary, but I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it's a very complicated issue because what happens is like, if I look at my internist, like love was a friend since I was a kid, who's just a, a really good person, good doctor, you know, more and more, I don't want to go see him. I want to text him on the app and say, can you fill the prescription or whatever it is, or I'm having this trouble. Can you deal with it? And what happens is, and they won't do that unless you do your physical with them every year, you do those kinds of things every year, stuff like that. But at the same time, at some point, like his time is valuable too. And if you're like, I'm, of course, as a, as a lawyer publisher, I am overloaded with emails and I'm guilty of overloading other people with emails because I got a million e electric newsletters and electric offerings. So it's like, but if I'm a doctor and now I have to see people in patient in person, and I've got to also respond to all these texts and so forth. And if I'm not part of a large system or large practice where somebody's helping to do it for me, you know, this is a huge burden. This is a real burden. And you get into the kind of thing like, like I'm one of the last people and one of my physician friends had done this 100 years ago. I don't have voicemail on my phone because I don't want somebody to call me and leave a message that I have to listen to. You follow me? If it's somebody, I know the number, I'll call them back right away, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, I don't want voicemail. I don't have to check my voicemails and listen to what people said. I got a problem on this. I never listen to my voice. I don't know what it is. You leave me a voicemail. I'm just like, all right, you must be crazy because we have text and it, you could text it, me. It well, you know, what's interesting here in Europe, what they do is they'll send you a, an audio file via text. That's the new voicemail. Is this like, here's my immediate voice that you're going to listen to instead of like, going to your it's interesting because that also feels people like are, voicemail though it, it, does, it, it does but they do i'm gonna it, send every, you a message to your phone and you're gonna listen to my voice because they don't want to sit there and type it out golly yeah. uh but anyway sorry scott was, but, but i do think on the my chart thing it's a complicated thing because if a physician's time ends up getting spent reading a ton of emails messages taxes when I mean, the good thing they've done is they have to go through the they almost have to go through the app through the system versus going through North Shore Connect or Advocate Connect or whatever it is, whatever the health system is, like you can't text the person individually, which is thank goodness. But it's if you're a physician and you're, you know, in certain specialties seeing 20, 30, 40 patients a day, so they have to sit down and respond to texts and emails. It's real work. Okay. I'm just curious because I feel like this may be a trend. And I know that's what you guys that's what you guys that's what you guys look it's for. It's certainly a trend, but I don't I don't know a way around it. I mean Medicare, Medicaid payers aren't going to pay for it. If yeah. a physician's time becomes 100% seeing patients and doing records, and then it becomes 70% seeing patients because he has to spend 20, 30%, he or she has to spend 20, 30% of their time doing emails and messages. That's revenue dropped and, yeah. It's just not fair. It's not fair to, in a profession that's getting beat up as it is. Totally agree. All right, I have a couple more questions. Uh, you know, Then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Number one, for you, what's more important? And you kind of alluded to this. If you had to pick one, you can only pick one conferences newsletters or website well it's it's it, yeah there's not one there's not one conferences and digital <laughs> you have to are, pick are, one you have to pick one here's here's why you can't do that if you look at our company half the 
revenues coming through digital, roughly, roughly, not exactly. Half comes through revenues, half comes through conferences. A very small amount today comes through print magazines. So print magazines, easy to be done with. I mean, not easy to be done with, but it's it's just not in, in the whole world that's become a lesser importance to everything. But digital includes digital includes newsletters, like obviously what you send Electric out. newsletters. And websites. Websites, newsletters, the white papers, the webinars, those kinds of things. We all put in the digital bucket. And then the conference bucket is the in-person bucket. And they're both very important. I mean, there's there's different like... The digital, when it's going great, can be higher margin. The conferences are more sustainable because people want that experience. It's not so much, it's not, it's not like something's being chat GPT out of business every day, but they're both going great. They're both very, very important. All right. That's not what I wanted, but I get it. So let me ask you this, just kind of you look back on the last 20 years or so that, that you've been growing this. What's the one thing you focused on that got you to the success this place that Becker's is today? If you had to boil it down to one thing, what is it? If I have to boil it down to one thing, and it's, we've written a book on business consoles, but at the end of the day, and again, I'm a reader and an incremental thinker, I would say it's the building of teams. I mean, at the end of the day, I was fortunate to build and understand this early. It wasn't without problems. I, I built a magnificent team of leaders in the law firm. We built a magnificent team of leaders with Jessica being number one, but building a whole team with her of leaders. And building teams is everything. You build great teams. There's a lot that you could do. And then you have to have the strategy, the vision, all those kinds of things. But the number one thing that allowed these things to work is it's we talked about the three evolutions of a founder. I believe that deeply to my soul. Once the founder gets to a spot where people are better than him in every role, you're in a far different spot and you need enough of them. So you're not too reliant on any one person. On any, you know, you're going to be, there's going to be people that are just like, you know, there's a lot of people at Becker's Healthcare, Jessica being number one, that would be a debacle without her. There's a lot of people in the law firm, Amber, Holly, Bart, some others, that if not for them, it would be a disaster. But you have to build multiple teams and teams are everything. Then you could, and people might think it's BS, it's not BS, something like that. But I think that's the number one thing. If I had to go to the number one thing is building teams. That makes total sense to me. I mean, you're scaling yourself it is what your goal is as you as you go, is you're trying to scale yourself. And if you can do that, then, I mean, you just put your reach much farther than you could ever do by, by yourself. So my last question, okay, this will be the last one. I don't know if I said that before, but I always do this. So what book would you recommend, business book for early stage founders trying to get off the ground? What, you know, learning core concepts? Yeah, this is a great question. I don't know that I have one book. There was a book. All right, you can give more than one. No, 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 no. I, I won't do that. But there's there's two different concepts I'll talk about as long as you give me the chance. I apologize for that. I can't help myself. The, the first one is back in the day, James Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great. I, th- I believe I'm hitting the right name, James Collins. I think he was very instrumental in my thinking. There's so many different people and readers and mentors that have been instrumental in my thinking. His concept of it's less strategy. Strategy you could figure out if you have great people in place, and it's all about great people in place. And you could figure out strategy with it within reason. So he was very, very instrumental to my thinking and still is. He had written books, built last, good to great, some others. You know, and some of the companies ended up not being so great over the course of 30, 40 years, but there was a lot about it. There's, there's, you know, there was... Some thinking originally back in the day from Jack Welch, the book that I'm loving right now, and as you guys get a little bit older and closer to my age, you'll understand this, but you guys already get this, is like um, there, there's a book by a doctor called Dr. Peter Atia. Outlive? Yes. And, and I think this concept of, you know, at some point, 
And better earlier than later, you know, we just gave a speech to spine residents and fellows. And one of the things we say to spine residents and fellows is early on and then forever, taking care of your physical and mental health is so, so important. And then the other thing we talk about is always living within or below your means. So you're not fragile to anybody. So you're financially stable. But, uh, you know, I think about those things often. But the book, because I'm just finished out with Peter Atia's book, but we think about those subjects. We made a huge transition over the last 20 years from raising children to growing businesses to now as much a focus in life is staying physically and mentally healthy because it's just so, so important. And in the internet age, COVID age, even more important because it's such a challenging thing. So we're I love good to great. I just, I, I love to outlive, but more than just loving the book outlive, I, I love the concept of people making core focus of their life or a big part of their life, physical, mental health. They're not always easy. Yeah. Great. Aaron, anything else? I think, I think that's fantastic for me. No, I'm looking forward to the Brian Harley summary. Okay. Yeah. Hit us with it. All right. So, uh, Scott, I like to do a, it's, it's a summary, but it's just really, it's more points that I, that I found interesting. And I've probably missed a bunch as I was writing it down. So please, I want you to chime in when I say something incorrect or you need to add a little color to it, please. So starting off, you know, uh, Becker's Healthcare, it's a behemoth multimedia company, reaches just about every aspect of healthcare with millions and millions of listeners. But it started as a way to build an audience for an attorney's practice, you know, and that's that to me is that little that was the core piece is you said there was a goal for it. You, You went out, you looked for an audience, you tried to you tried to build a stable base of clients for your practice. And then as you went on, you learned that this audience could provide something more and they needed more and they wanted more and there was a need there. So I found it so interesting that the brand and audience became so important. You know, it superseded anything you were trying to do at the beginning. And I think that shows for early entrepreneurs, you don't know exactly where you're going to go with something. And Aaron knows exactly probably what I'm going to say next is Backtable started as a website for kits. We were were building device kits and that's what we thought this was going to be, right, Aaron? And then, you know, however many years later, it quickly became, oh my gosh, everybody wanted to learn through podcasts. So it's, I think it's an important point to make that you don't know where you're going to go, but just starting and getting out there and building a brand probably leads to unexpected benefits throughout your career. No, I, I love the summary. And I think that's exactly right. And so many people in trying to build something never take that first step. And those first steps are very challenging. I remember early on, a physician friend of mine said, I get your newsletter. I use it for toilet paper. And you know, as you get started, until you get started, you don't really, well, there's a great other business phrase, and I'll shut up in a second so I can help myself, which is you don't know you're hitting anything until you get punched in the nose. And it takes working hard enough, putting yourself out there enough until you start to take some of those shots where people start to, and then you sort of have to push through those things to people go from like taking shots at you to respecting it after you're done. I mean, what you guys have done with back table innovation is insane. I mean, it's, it's insanely incredible success you've had in, in just a, a couple of years. It's amazing. That's rough, man. I haven't heard that toilet paper. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> it's, it's an anesthesiologist friend of mine, and he just thought he was being funny. But to me, who was working so hard at this, I was like, ah. It's your baby. Yeah. It, it really it's was. like calling your baby ugly. Yeah. Okay. Next I have, so I have about six more or seven more points. I don't know. I keep writing. So three evolutions of a founder. I love this. So number one, you do everything yourself. Yourself, You're the jack of all trades, master of none, just trying to push things forward. Then you start hiring a few folks, but you still have to be able to manage everything and, and even micromanage 
so that you keep progressing. You've increased your ability, your reach, but you're still putting in probably that same amount more effort. Special things start to happen when you hire people to replace yourself that are better than you. And that's when probably the the song starts to start to sound like a like a piano concert rather than somebody playing chopsticks. So I really liked that. You mentioned this, uh, a winning business. You said you have to have, and I want you to correct me here. You said you have an, a niche business, customer focus, and good people. And I think that goes along with a lot of the other things you said. But did I, did I say that correctly or what did I? We view it exactly that. We use the phrase niche-centric, customer-centric, team-centric. Those three things are just the, 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 you know, the critical building blocks of anything you're doing. Got it. So I love that you mentioned take care of your audience first and everything else will fall into place. I think that's great. And then at the end, you gave a really good point. Most important aspect is to build a team of leaders. Build great teams and there's really nothing you can't do. And I think that's, that is, if that can be the North Star of many early stage founders, I think they will become successful. Because when you hire great people, they're going to find the problem. They're going to find a solution to all your problems, right? I think that's probably the key. As an individual, you don't necessarily see the, the solutions to all these problems that you see coming up in front of you. But hiring a team, they may see that and they will be able to get over that. And that's why it increases your chances of success tenfold. There's two things I would add to those two points you just made. The, the first one on the team, as you build a team, there's a ton of sorting out of that team. You can't prejudge. I've seen so many people hire somebody saying, that person's going to be the great, great hope of the company. This person's going to be the great, great way to this, great, great way to that. And it's not until you have people with you for some time that you really understand their strengths and weaknesses. Some of our very best people started one role, moved to another role. Some of our people we thought were going to be our best people aren't with us. Other people where we didn't know that would be phenomenal. I knew Jessica joined me in college. She was literally working out of an apartment. I had no idea she'd outperform the 10 other people that I hired. Within two years, she had so outperformed everybody. I was like, she's in charge. I, I can't deal with this. You know, And I was not like, I can only manage so many people. I was like, oh my goodness, let her be in charge of it. The other thing I said about building an audience first, 100%, you have to be so good at what your audience wants. But the rest of it, if I said to Jessica, the rest of it takes care of herself, she might kill me. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? You said this platform. Yeah, yeah. There, it just falls into place. Basically, it runs itself. Exactly. <laughs> but no, you have to constantly have a commercial eye on stuff too. We see other people that are building software companies. I've certainly got a software boards. Like you have to both be great at building software and you have to be constantly commercializing to make sure you're meeting something that people need. So it's this constant two focused effort of like of both. Take care of your audience and constantly have a, a, a commercial eye on things. So we'll put those two things. We'll pair those two things together and execute. Of course, you've got that. Exactly. All right. That's all I got, folks. But thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, folks, very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Gamaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.